Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about dinosaurs and only dinosaurs. Today, we are lucky enough to talk to very special guest paleontologist, Chris Capobianco. Hi, Chris. Hey, how's it going? It's going very well. Um, So we have some exciting dinosaur questions for you and questions about paleontology and and what you do. So let's, I guess, just jump right in, huh? Um, Sure, sounds good. Ask away. So how did you get started in paleontology? Because I don't think I've ever heard a paleontologist say anything different from, you know, I loved dinosaurs as a kid and that just never went away. Was that was it that way for you? Yeah, it's pretty much <laughs> the same story for me. Um, well, thank when you I was for super- being consistent with, <laughs> with my experience. Um, yeah, so when I was super young, um, probably about three or four years old, I got my first, like, dinosaur book. And uh, I remember it was... It had to do with like pop-up dinosaurs and stuff. My grandmother got it for me and I was very excited about it. And then uh, only a couple years after that is when Jurassic Park came out. And then that's what like truly, you know, was the inspiration when I was young and I was dinosaur obsessed for, ooh, you know, a good, good several years in there. And then I would say the remainder of your life and career, not just a good several years. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It it sort of waned a a bit, you know, when you go through those awkward teenage years, Uh, dinosaurs, exactly cool and stuff. But I remember once I was starting to decide what I wanted to get into in university, um, I wanted to get into paleontology, but there wasn't really a paleontology program. Like you don't go for an undergrad in paleontology. Oh, I wonder why Typically, you go for a degree in geology or biology mm-hmm. or some combination of the two, which kind of makes it into a paleontology degree. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up going to uh, Carleton University, which is in Ottawa, Ontario. And I studied earth sciences there, which is essentially geology. Right. Uh, but some biology courses as well to sort of create myself a paleontology degree. Cool. So what, um, what came out of that? What's your research on these days? Oh, these days. So, so things like changed quite a bit. So when I was in my undergrad, I got to do some field work out in Southern Alberta when I was in my fourth year, um, sort of like the summer before. And so that got me kind of hooked on paleontology and I was like, okay, I can see myself doing this. And once I finished out my undergrad, which my research that I did was mainly to do with, um, more paleogeography. Um, so environmental analysis, looking at sedimentology, um, changes through, uh, what was called the Western interior seaway of North America. Okay. Basically a body of water that split North America almost in half at some points. Wait, Um, really? When, when, like how long ago? Um, it was throughout pretty much all of the Cretaceous period. Um, so part of the early Cretaceous, um, certainly the continent is split up, uh, into 
with the seaway in the middle, and then at other times, it only partially comes down. So it would have connected the Arctic Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico oh, when whoa. it was split. Mm-hmm. So, so connecting it, I mean, uh, splitting it longitudinally. I was thinking the other way. Huh. Yeah. So at, at this time is when you're getting like the uplifting of the Rockies. And so because of that, you're getting this basin on the other side, which would oh, now be filled with sediment called right. the Great Plains right. and the prairies of Canada. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't and then know that, that. Yeah, it's super cool to think that, you know, the geology of North America looked a lot different back in those days. It would have been separate places. Sometimes it'd be connected, sometimes not. So pretty neat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, Amber and I were talking just before this, um, and she wanted to know, and this, this jumps into our next question, um, how long does it take a fossil to form and like, could it, could, what's the shortest time it could take for a fossil to form basically? Oh, that's a good question. I think it would probably take somewhere in like the tens of thousands of years. Okay. So not quick. Um, Not, not quick. No. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's stuff that, you know, we have fossils of things that are in that range of, you know, pre last ice age. Um, and some of them are like partially fossilized. Nothing's really fully, fully fossilized, though, mm. I would say, with, with stuff that old. Um, but I think it all depends um, how fast it gets buried, um, how much more sediment's being deposited on top. Um, yeah, there's a few things that I think would go into it. So it's very, it's very environmentally driven. <clears throat> yes. Oh, yeah. The fossilization pro- process is entirely um, environmentally driven. So does it always work the same way? It's um, it's groundwater carrying minerals that, that gradually replaces some of the <clears throat> material of whatever's being fossilized? Yeah, so that's one way. That's called replacement. Um, that's pretty common um, when um, – and that's, yes, uh, minerals in the groundwater. And it's essentially like a switching out of minerals in the bone with minerals from the groundwater. Um, another common type is one called permineralization. Um, so what happens there is kind of the same thing, except instead of replacing the bone, the minerals, uh, form within the cells of the, of the bone. And so it kind of becomes a solid mass instead of like a, you know, if you had trabecular bone, so like the bone that looks like the inside of an arrow bar, if you were to break it open. Yeah. Spongy bone. Spongy bone. Exactly. In replacement, uh, it would still look like spongy bone, but if it was permineralization, they oh, would all be filled. Be, okay, I see. Yeah, I and then you can also have molds form. So that's what happens when you get a bone and the rock forms around it, oh, but the like bone dissolves away. Yeah. So a cast is when that mold gets filled in. Oh, oh okay, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, a mold is the outside part, a cast is whatever's inside. I see. Right. Yeah. The one is the negative. The other is the positive. Yeah. Right. So are you studying fossils now? Yes. Yeah. Which ones? So what are you, what's your, so you've, we talked about your sort of progression through undergrad and figuring out how Mm -hmm. to, how to get yourself a non-existent paleontology degree. And then then what happened? Uh, So then I took a summer position out at a museum in Alberta called the Royal Tyrrell Museum of Paleontology. And they hire on summer people who are typically in geology, um, and but they can be for a wide range of backgrounds. 
But my position was I was hired to do work in the prep lab, so fossil preparation. And I really took to that. And not being one who was overly motivated after doing my undergrad dissertation to do another one right away, I decided to take um, a couple years off and I was and doing this fossil preparation there. And then I decided to go for a Master of Arts in the UK in museum studies because I was more interested in like the collections management and preservation side right. of paleontology. And then uh, pretty much straight out of that is where I got my job at Harvard University as the lab manager and fossil preparator there. Cool. So what do you do there? Is it it's so it's <clears throat> when you say fossil preparing, it's preparing for exhibition, for study, for what do you what do you do, Chris? <laughs> All of the above. Um, so my job is uh, starts with field work. So I do a lot of the logistical planning, um, pouring over geologic maps, finding where to go, what to bring, what to collect, all that kind of stuff. And, and then when we do plan expeditions, I do, yeah. Ah. <laughs> and then when we bring stuff back from the field. It's my job to take it from this raw item that we've removed from the field and remove uh, sometimes all the rock, but not necessarily all the rock, but essentially preparing the specimen so that it can be used for either going on exhibition um, or typically it's for research Mm -hmm. uh, is what I do most of pretty much all my preparation nowadays for. Cool. Um, Do you have have a favorite fossil? I do. So yes. My favorite fossil is pretty much everything that I've worked on has become a favorite <laughs> fossil of mine at some point. And the reason is, um, you know, fossil preparation is not a fast process by any means. Typically takes sometimes days on small things to weeks to even months. And the longest thing I ever worked on was about 20 months worth of work. Um, and that was a <laughs> really well to- acquainted. <laughs> Yes, it was a an articulated, uh, which means altogether mosasaur, which is a type of marine reptile, oh, and cool. it was about it would be about eight meters long. Whoa! In total, um, where did and you store it? It, <laughs> it was stored. So it was in two different jackets. We split it in half. Oh, okay. Um, so basically, in the middle of the body, where there's just ribs, mm-hmm. that's the easiest spot for us to right, break up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what basically one half had the front half of the body, the other one had the second half of the body and the tail. Um, and so two different blocks in total, it was about 8,000 pounds, I think, worth of rock that I had Holy to go crap. through. So a lot of rock, a lot of rock to go through and prepare. Uh, that was definitely a, a favorite specimen of mine. And it probably stays up there right now because I know it's on display in the museum now at the Royal Tyrrell Museum where I was working. So that's really cool when a specimen you've worked on gets to go on display. Yeah, it's like it's like your little baby growing up. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you get to know it so intimately, like every detail of the specimen you know, and it's just so cool. Yeah, man, that is really cool. Um, so you said the mosasaur was, it's a marine fossil? Yeah, it's a marine. It's a marine reptile, um, and specifically, it's actually a lizard. So it'd be related to modern day snakes and and lizards today. Um, they know that because they they're missing a bone within their skull called the quadratigual, and so that bone's missing. So we know it's a lizard, which are because um, lizards don't have that. Because lizards don't have that. Okay. Yeah. 
Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's wild to think about marine animals that were that large that aren't, you know, like reptiles being that large just in general. Um, but, Oh, definitely. I mean, there are other things that were even bigger than, than this mosasaur. There were bigger mosasaurs. Um, there were types of, um, plesiosaurs and pliosaurs, which are also marine reptiles that had like, some had big necks, some had short necks, um, with like four paddles. Um, they were almost the same size and even ichthyosaurs, which are the ones that are sort of dolphin shaped and they have like yeah. really, really big eyes. Yeah. Um, some of those things got really big. Was that, so were things that big that, that long ago because they could be? That big, like, was it a specialized adaptation? Was was size an adaptation for their environment, or why why were they so big? I'm I have no idea. That's an acceptable Not answer. Sure. There were also very big fish. I know as well. Um, so big, but food, yeah, why as the whole? I'm I'm not really sure. Oh, okay. I mean, we have whales today, which I mean, the That's blue whales true. would easily surpass all of these marine reptiles. Yeah. So. And they only eat krill. So yeah, they only eat krill. Huh. Yeah. That's quite the mystery. Um, well, speaking of, of animal adaptations and stuff, can you think of, uh, some favorite adaptations that you've seen on fossils? Like, are there fossils of animals that were super specialized for particular environments? Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at dinosaurs in particular, each of the different groups of dinosaurs have their own weird specialties. <laughs> you think of like ankylosaurs, and they're like those oh, yeah. tanks. You know, they're big tanks. Their bodies are so big and all that armor. You think of sauropods, like the long neck dinosaurs, and mm-hmm. their huge size. Um, is it ceratops. That, sorry, is it true that sauropods had a separate brain in their tail? Is that true? I remember reading that. I think you're thinking stegosaurs. I could very well be thinking stegosaurs. To my knowledge, it's not like a brain. Okay. Like I, it's. I think it's some type of. Um, like a, yeah, I, like I don't a quite know what clusters, it is. But perhaps yeah, something like that. But I love I the don't, idea I don't that you could be so big that you need separate separate clusters for different parts of you. Because the signal yeah. might get lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, stegosaurs have those plates and spikes on their tail. like Right. You know, so a lot of the adaptations seem to be sort of defensive. They could be, yeah. And it seemed to be a lot. Or, or with display. I think a lot of people have been doing work and research on um, some of these with display instead. So oh, like, basically like uh, signal mating. Um, with uh, like ceratopsian, like the horned dinosaurs with their frills and horns mm-hmm, mm-hmm. probably had more to deal with that. And same with like hadrosaurs, which are the duck-billed dinosaurs that have oh, the crests. Yeah, yeah, my um, favorite. They think, you know, they can, different crest shapes made different sounds, which could allow them to differentiate <laughs> different honks. species out on the playing field, I guess. <laughs> well, okay, um, so, so speaking to that, what would have been... You know, they've got all these extra frills and horns and spikes. And if that is for signaling either to members of the opposite sex or if, you know, it's males competing with other males or something and signaling to them, what else would be on the outside? Because 
I remember as a little kid in books, dinosaurs were always kind of covered in scales and they were sort of illustrated in shades of brown. And since, Mm -hmm. since then we've seen, or I, I, I've read lots of articles, you know, dinosaurs had feathers, maybe some dinosaurs had fur. Like what, how do we know what was on the outside of dinosaurs and what was? So you can get exceptionally preserved specimens that have feathers. And when they say fur, fur is a strictly mammalian trait. Okay. However, the shortest, the like most basic type of feather mm-hmm. is, is looks like hair. Okay. Structurally, it looks the same, but materially, it's different. Um, and so, is it keratin? That or would. Oh no, hair. Yeah, hair I think is keratin. I'm, Wait, I just confused myself. <laughs> um, I'm not exactly sure on the structure. That's okay. You're not. You're not responsible for every for... every detail of <laughs> dino feathers. But um, yes, you get exceptionally preserved specimens that have feathers preserved. So Archaeopteryx is a great example. Mm-hmm. You know, Archaeopteryx is a dinosaur. It's not a bird, but it has flight feathers on its arms, wow. which is pretty spectacular. And even um, flight feathers have been found on uh, a, like another group called Ornithomimids. I know have had flight feathers preserved. And lots of other dinosaurs that come in that meat-eating family called theropods mm-hmm. have other types of feathers. Um, and then I think one, I think it's protoceratops, a type of horned dinosaur had like a spiky-ish tail. It would have had like almost like quills. Oh. Explaining it, yeah. Huh. And so do do people who research that kind of thing, do you know if they think it was like the way that bird plumage is today, it, it would have been sort of signaling? And I mean, what else would it be for? It, it seems crazy. It's it's really difficult for me to think about dinosaurs with different textures than what were what was in the books I read as a kid. Right. Yeah. I mean, from when the time of when we were kids to what they are, what dinosaurs look like now, they've gone under they've undergone quite a bit of a change. Um, again, because so many have feathers and that kind of thing. But I would say feathers primarily, particularly the simplest type of feather, the one that's fur like, mm-hmm. would have been used for insulation. Oh, um, okay birds are warm-blooded and it's thought that probably a good portion of the dinosaurs were warm-blooded as well. Oh, that's new and different to me. So if I had to guess, probably a good portion of it had to do with um, insulation, keeping themselves warm. Oh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, Do you have... So this could this could either be from sort of the history of paleontology or your own field work. But do you have a favorite um, dino discovery story like that? That mosasaur that you were um, taking out of its little jackets, which, by the way, jacket is like the the plaster that you use to protect the fossils. Right. Is it that? Correct. Yes. That's the term we use for the plaster and burlap that we encase the, the specimen in to get it safely from the field to the lab. So did you end up finding the mosasaur in the field? Um, I did not. That one was found at a mine oh, um, that makes sense. where they actually mine for another type of fossil called amina- amylite. 
Um, the fossil is ammonite, but um, under certain conditions, it can form a gemstone quality of rock called amolite, oh, which gets very pretty and colorful. It's blue and purple, red and green, sort of all these different colors. <clears throat> but it was the people who were mining for the specimen that actually found it, got in contact with us at the museum. And I was one of the people who got to go down and um, help excavate the specimen oh, from the field cool. lab and then prepared in the lab. So it, it was a specimen I almost got to see from very start to very finish. Oh, that's so cool. Well, is that your favorite uh, discovery story or, or do you have others? Um, I think like one of the coolest specimens um, right now is one called Boreal Pelta. Um, and it was, is, is again from the same museum. Um, it was the very first year I started there. Uh, again in a mine, but this time up in Fort McMurray, they, um, a guy running one of the big machines dug into the cliffside, saw some fossil bone, got in contact with the museum and a few people went up there. And what it is, is in, it's essentially the front half. So from just in front of the hips forward, I believe, Mm -hmm. and it's a mummified dinosaur. Oh yeah. I saw a news report about about this and the skin was beautifully preserved and yeah. Yeah. Like you incredible. can even see like the, the folds in the skin and all the armor is in place, which is like truly exceptional. Cause a lot of times the armor just, cause it's just embedded in the skin will just fall off. Oh, okay. Huh. During fossilization. So right. I think that's like a really, really cool specimen. And I know the preparator who, who um, prepared the specimen, Mark Mitchell, um, the species actually got named after him and it took him a good chunk of time to prepare that, um, <laughs> until it could get to the point where it was, you know, describable. Like he worked on that for, I would say easily five, five to six years, wow. probably. Yeah. They for one specimen. Really well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's an incredible fossil and we'll post some pictures of it on our social media so that people can see it. Um, cause it's really mm-hmm. cool looking. Um, it is. So it, paleontology has come a really long way, it sounds like, from even just 20 or so years ago, um, which is how long ago I choose to let people believe I was a child. Um, <laughs> but what do, you, what do you think the future of paleontology holds? Like, is there cool emerging tech in the field right now? Because I know for, for archaeology, for example... Um, you know, drones and things and um, sort of little bots that can explore crevices. That's made a real difference in some, some of our ability to go explore new places. So is there, is there an equivalent in paleontology? Um, yeah, I would say there's lots of new tech or tech that's making its way into paleontology. So um, things like the different imaging technologies, photogrammetry, laser scanning, mm-hmm. uh, CT scanning is big. Um, and then different ways of, of sampling specimens. So like um, doing destructive work with isotopes or bone histology, those types of things are really like you know, broadening the field and really trying to bring in these different aspects of biology to the study of specimens. And I think that's the way that paleontology is sort of moving in. Um, I think a lot of people traditionally think of a paleontologist as being someone who, 
goes out in the field and collects fossils and brings them back and then names a new species. Uh But the naming of a new species is, I would say, not as common anymore. Not that it's not as common, but more people are... The science of paleontology has just become so big where there's lots of people using big data analytics and programming to crunch big data sets of numbers for whether it's comparative anatomy or uh, biomechanics, um, all types of things. And the number of paleontologists these days who use, um, you know, specimens that are um, not necessarily alive, but, you know, extant, so living today, Um, you know, a lot are being used for comparatives to um, be able to further understand these animals that lived so long ago as modern comparisons. Oh, that's cool. So what, what could you use, what could one use as a comparison for, well, let's, let's stick with the Mosasaur. Like, is there something alive today that is close enough to it that we could understand something about a 20 foot, you said it was eight, <laughs> 25 foot giant marine reptile? Like what, what would you use? Um, that is a good question. Or, you know, feel free to choose any other equivalent living animal. Um, so so some, some common things would be, um, so for dinosaurs, for instance, a lot of comparisons, if you look um, phylogenetically, so mm-hmm. how things are related to one another, um, most people would compare them to um, crocodiles would be an elk group when doing right. phylogeny. So, you know, everything within dinosaurs is equally related to, say, crocodiles, which is the closest living relative and then going the other way would be birds um right that makes sense because birds are derived from one particular group of dinosaurs which one uh the theropods so like the meat-eating dinosaurs oh okay okay yeah yeah we have um groups of wild turkeys that just kind of roam around my apartment and it's (laughs) always a little unnerving walking past them because they are small dinosaurs it's really, yeah, the more you actually think about it and see them, like if you go to the zoo and you see a cassowary, yeah. e- uh, an emu or an ostrich, some of those bigger flightless birds, and you mm-hmm. look at their legs yeah, and they're scaly, they've got, you know, that typical like three-toed stance. Um, yeah, yeah, they're little, it, they're exactly, little tyrannosaur legs. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There, um, there were, it's it's been rainy here and there are turkey tracks all over in the mud and they just, they look like dinosaur footprints. It's great. (laughs) Um, so I have one last question, which Mm -hmm. is what, what is one thing that you want people to know about paleontology, whether how you do paleontology or, or the field in general, or what would you want to tell, tell our audience of the dirt, a podcast that's only about dinosaurs? (laughs) <laughs> that it's definitely not archaeology. You know, we say the same thing <laughs> about paleontology. Um, you know, I think people think the two terms are interchangeable, that they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the number of times I've been asked if I'm like Indiana Jones is, you know, probably compared on oh, the number yeah. of years that the dinosaurs lived to go. It's, mm-hmm. it's that many. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think, um, and, I, and I think the other thing, too, is that when people think of paleontology, they just think of dinosaurs, right. but there's so many other things that lived um, 
a long time ago. And all of it has contributed to our Earth's history. And all of it is worth studying. Dinosaurs are cool because they're big and famous. And in the movies. But they're so... And in the movies, yes. Um, but there's so many other cool things um, to be studied. And I think there's so many neat studies coming out now that um, are really kind of exemplifying, you know, the importance of paleontology towards the Earth's future. Yeah, um, especially as it pertains to sort of the abundance of life on Earth and, and what happens when some of that life goes away, sometimes drastically, sometimes quickly. But Exactly. Hey, maybe maybe someday the the movie Cambrian Park will come out, and it'll just be, <laughs> it'll just be trilobites everywhere. Um, Actually, there is a horror movie about no. killer trilobites. No, there is. What's it called? I must watch it immediately. I, I can I can't remember the name. I mean, I but bet I, could I was told it. it by the um, invertebrate paleontology curator at Harvard oh, man. was talking about this one day. How there is a uh, bad horror movie about trilobites. I think something about them, you know, being frozen in ice or something, and then you know the ice melts and, and they go on a rampage, scuttling around, eating things. Yes. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> well, I know what I'm going to be googling very shortly. <laughs> um, well, thank Good you. Good way to spend the weekend. Yeah, I know. Thank you so much, Chris, for for talking to us. Um, it's been a blast. <laughs> You're very welcome. It's been fun. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.